If you have a Bible, please go to Acts chapter 13 and 14 is where we're going to be this morning. If you'd like to use a pew Bible, you can open that up. Find the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a little over halfway through that Bible. And then Acts would be the next book, chapters 13 and 14. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your presence that's here in this room with us right now. And we thank you also that your presence is very much with all those watching online on television. And we pray now as we open your word that you would speak to us. And would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see Jesus and just Jesus. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to continue in our series entitled Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we come to this crucial point in the book of Acts. And today what we're going to see is that the Holy Spirit witnesses to and drives us to the gospel. Now, as soon as I say that word gospel, uh, depending on your experience with church or religion in general, different things go through our minds. Some people say that the gospel is really the elementary teachings of scripture and it's kind of what gets you into the church or gets you into a relationship with God and then you've got to move on to deeper things. And my friends, that is not true. That is not true. Paul said in Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And again, a lot of times in our, our minds, we think, oh yeah, yes, that's right. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And there was a point in my history back there where I believed and that's when I received the gospel and then I move on to more mature things. Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, he says, now I would remind you, brothers, meaning the church, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in the past, in which you stand in the present, in which you're being saved by, second by second in life. He says, unless, unless you, you really didn't believe me, unless you believed in vain. And right there he tells us that the gospel is so much bigger than just a presentation in the past that I say yes to. It is the very thing that saved me in the beginning. It's the thing that saves me right now as I stand on it. And every second that I walk into the future, it's what I'm being saved by. So when Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that's not a one-time thing. That's a lifetime journey until we're in heaven with Jesus forever. So the gospel is not elementary, but it's everything. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. I want to start with a summary of Acts 14, actually, and then we're going to come back to Acts 13. In Acts 14, kind of a big summary of 14, 1 through 21, we find Paul and Barnabas and Iconum, Lystra, and Derby, And we see this amazing testimony of persecution and perseverance, especially in the first seven verses and there we read in verse three and four, so they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly the word of the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Verse four, but the people of the city were divided. Right here, we actually see a pattern what we see take place in the first seven verses of chapter 14 of Acts is a pattern that we see throughout the book of Acts. 
And the pattern that we see is that first, there's faithful gospel proclamation. And then second, we see the Holy Spirit bear witness to the gospel with power through signs and wonders. And then third, we see that their message of preaching the gospel divides the audience. Some believe, some do not. And this is because what the gospel does is it brings us to this place of we have to define what is true. Everybody makes a truth claim. Everybody, you, me, everybody is saying the truth is this, meaning the truth is not that, whatever that is and whatever this is. And every person cannot not make a truth claim, matter of fact. And when the gospel is presented, we have to say, is it true or is it not true? Some say true, some say not true, division happens. It always happens. That's why the gospel divides us. And this is the pattern that we see taking place throughout the book of Acts through the proclamation of the gospel. It's proclaimed, the Holy Spirit bears witness with power, and then it divides. It divides. In Acts 14, uh, verses one through seven, we see the Jews step up their opposition to enlist Gentiles to form a mob that intend to stone Paul and Barnabas and they're forced to escape to another city. That's one through seven. Eight through 20, we see that there's a crowd that gathers in Lystra and they think that Paul and Barnabas are Greek gods. (laughs) Not because they were working out, by the way. Luke describes a second miracle that Paul does with the healing of a man lame from birth, which causes a stir in the crowd. And all of a sudden the crowd thinks that Paul and Barnabas are the incarnations of the pagan Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. Zeus is the god of sky and thunder, Hermes, his son. So Paul and Barnabas reject this outright. And they just correct them, no, we are not gods at all. And whenever they do this and they denounce other gods, Paul is stoned to death and left, or stoned and left for dead, not stoned to death. He's stoned and left for dead. You know, it's, it's interesting. You know, there are times when we think serving the Lord is inconvenient because it's time consuming. If you were to talk with Paul about that, he would say serving the Lord is inconvenient because it involves broken ribs and concussions. The question here is what got Paul and Barnabas into so much trouble? The easy answer or short answer is their message. Almost everywhere they went, people were converted. Some were converted, some were not. And many times those who did not convert reacted violently. But what was their message? That's what we're gonna look at this morning. But but to understand Paul's message, first we have to understand Paul's call to ministry. We have to understand Paul's call to ministry. This starts in Acts chapter nine with Paul having a radical encounter with the risen Jesus. And that encounter changed everything for him. It changed his heart. It changed how he thought about God, how he saw the world, and it changed totally the trajectory of his life. That's the first part of it. The second part of Paul's call to ministry is this time of preparation that we see him enter into. But this preparation really is on-the-job training. It was somewhere in the range of eight to 12 years between Paul's conversion and him beginning his first missionary journey that we're gonna see today. During this time, Paul spent three years in the desert of Arabia being taught by the Spirit of Christ. That's Galatians 1, 11 through 17. He spent four years in Jerusalem and in his hometown of Tarsus. 
See that reference, Acts 9, 30. He preached in Antioch for a year. That's Acts 10, 25, 26. And then in Acts 12, we see Paul and Barnabas bringing supplies to the church in Jerusalem. So he's a supply smuggler for the church. We know that there was a big famine that hit the land. We know that from history around that time. And so it starts with this encounter with Jesus. Then there's this time where God is preparing Paul while he's doing ministry. He's involved in ministry in different ways in different places. But then the third part of that is in Acts 13, we see Paul find his ultimate purpose. And that ultimate purpose was to be an apostle, particularly to the Gentiles. But first we see a door open for him to preach to Jews here. And so in Acts 13, one through three, we see in verse one that at the church at Antioch, that's in Syria, there were prophets and teachers. Many of them are listed there. And then in verse two, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse three says, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Right here we see God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to the church, directing the church's mission as he should always be doing. But here we see the church denying themselves in prayer or in fasting, seeking the Lord's will in prayer, commissioning Paul and Barnabas by laying their hands on them and then sending them out to fulfill the great commission. And what this tells us is the primary, primary missions agency on the planet is the local church. The primary sending agency on the planet is local churches just like we are. And so we have to be asking ourselves, God, where are you calling us? Maybe short term, maybe long term. Just had a conversation this week uh, about a church plant in Scotland. I asked the person, you know, what was the number one thing you need? And he said, go tell people to pray. Maybe they're called to come be a part of our team long term. So anybody feeling a call to Scotland, you let me know. Glasgow to be specific. But that's what we do as a church. There are three other couples that's already signed up from different parts of the world to go be a part of that. One of them's from Atlanta because God still sends people out to be on mission for him in the world. The Holy Spirit still speaks while we're worshiping and fasting because of course we're all fasting often, aren't we? God shows up and he speaks and he directs us. The church confirms that through more fasting and prayer, laying on of hands and commissioning and sending off. So this mission begins. We see that they go to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas is actually from. And then we see a door opening to preach the gospel. They make it to Paphos. We see it in verse six of Acts 13. And here something important happens when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel. In verse six, it says, when they had gone through the whole island of Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar meaning son of. So that's what he's claiming his name is, son of Jesus. Verse seven, he was with the proconsul, so the governor, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Verse eight, but Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them. How did he oppose them? Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. That's a big problem. 
Verse nine, but Saul, who was also called Paul, there's his Hebrew and Gentile name mentioned, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, verse 10, and said, you son of the devil. That's strong language right there. You call anybody a son of anything in that strong language. But there he's speaking to his identity. You enemy of all righteousness. There he's speaking to the position of his heart, full of deceit and villainy. That's his actions. Will you stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's Paul's charge. Verse 11, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. When the governor, then the governor, the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at, watch this, the teaching of the Lord. This was one big teaching moment here. And the teaching comes through this prophetic proclamation through Paul about Elamus, but also the power of the Spirit and what God is doing in this moment. Now, I say this is important because in cases where we see the gospel preached throughout the book of Acts, a choice is given to the crowd. The gospel is proclaimed, and then there's a choice to make. Some believe, some choose to not believe, and the preacher of the day, Paul, Barnabas, Stephen, whoever it is, honors that choice. But when people seek to usurp the authority, the individual authority of another person and try to influence them and divert them away from hearing the gospel and having an opportunity to respond to it, that's where we see the apostles step in. And that's what's taking place here. The problem is this confusion. Elamus is casting confusion and actively seeking to lead people, a person or even a group of people, away from, divert them from hearing the gospel. It's one thing for a person to hear the gospel and reject it. It's another thing to hinder someone from hearing the gospel so they don't have an opportunity to receive it. That's the problem here, and that's why Paul steps in. And the Spirit does what he does in a dramatic manner. We see that uh, also in this section of Scripture that there's someone named John Mark that is invited to go along with Paul and Barnabas. Now, John Mark leaves uh, the group, and he leaves the group probably because he lacked the courage to travel further inland, places he did not know. But one note about John Mark is that John Mark was added by Barnabas, his cousin. He was not added to this group by the Holy Spirit. There's a whole other lesson in that. But God knew that John Mark was not ready. It seems like it took Barnabas, John uh, John Mark, and Paul a little longer to discover that. But John Mark will come up later. And that's why I point that out. In Acts 13, 14 through 52, they make it to Poseidon, Antioch and Poseidon. And right here, Luke describes Paul's method for preaching the gospel among the Jews and those who convert. And right here, what we're going to see, we're just going to let Paul's words speak to us. We see this fundamental lesson or message or sermon that Paul would preach in addressing a Jewish audience. And for us to understand the gospel, we really need to understand these verses. So there's four movements to this text. The first movement is that Paul points out that the whole story of Israel points to Jesus. Pick it up in verse 16. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, because they've been invited in by the elders to share 
at this point. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, meaning the converts to Judaism, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So notice he starts with Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. That's the Exodus. So he starts with the end of Genesis. He goes to the Exodus. And then verse 18, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness. That's, I love that phrase, he put up with them. Have you ever wondered if God was just putting up with you right now? I know you're special and all. Notice verse 19, he says, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, so this is the Canaan conquest, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. So right there, Paul just summarized 450 years of history in a few sentences. And after he gave them judges, so the time of the judges, and Samuel, the prophet, and they asked for a king. So now we're all the way from through the judges, the time of kings, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David. We're all the way to David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And then notice verse 23, of this man's offspring, meaning through the Davidic line, God has brought Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Notice he starts in Egypt, Exodus, wilderness, Canaan, judges, prophets, kings, David, David's line, Jesus. Verse 24, he ends with John, the last of the Old Testament prophets. Before his coming, John, this is John the Baptist, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And, John was, and as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. There, Luke, the writer of Acts, quoting Matthew 3.11. And the first thing that Paul makes clear, and this is very important, is that Israel's story points to Jesus. God had been preparing the world for this moment and whenever we look back into the Old Testament, we have to look and we read it to see how is this pointing us to Jesus? How is this showing us Jesus? How is this foreshadowing to us Jesus? This is important. I remember being in seminary. And I'm in seminary and I'm sitting there, I'm typing notes as the professor is talking, someone who's well-published in the world. And as the professor is talking and I'm typing notes, I remember this liberal professor saying, don't read the Hebrew Bible and insert Jesus. He's not there. And that, what just ran through my mind was, tell that to Paul. Tell that to Peter. Tell that to Stephen who recounted what God had done through history, just like Paul is doing here, and then gave his life for it. Tell that to them. It's so important that we understand that when we open our Bible, there's a reason why there's an Old and New Testament. When we open our Bible and we read the Old Testament, it's all pointing us to Jesus, and that's what Paul wants the people to know. Jesus didn't just appear, and this is some new thing God is doing. God had been preparing the world for this moment. 
So the first thing he points out is that Israel's story points to Jesus. Number two is that the father used Israel's unbelief in Jesus for the world's atonement through Jesus. Pick it up in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. That's the gospel. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets. Do you see what he's saying? So they didn't recognize Jesus when he showed up because they didn't understand the Old Testament. They didn't understand what the prophets were saying, which are read every Sabbath, he says. That's scary. That we can come in and we can open up the Bible and we can read about God, but then we don't even recognize God when he shows up. He says, they were fulfilled. He fulfilled them, they fulfilled them by condemning him. Meaning Israel's rejection of Jesus because they did not recognize him, because they did not understand the utterances of the prophets They actually fulfilled the scriptures by condemning Jesus. Verse 28, and though they found uh, uh, in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried carried out all that was written of him, notice that written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. Paul starts and he says, Israel's story all points to Jesus. He walks them through all of that history, through the Davidic line, through John the Baptist, right here to Jesus. But in this moment, the Savior of Israel showed up and Israel did not receive him. But through that rejection, he goes to a cross, he goes to a tomb for me and for you. Because they didn't see They didn't recognize him. Third movement. Paul says that God fulfilled his promises to Israel by raising Jesus from the dead. Notice it says, they took him down from a tree. They laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Isn't that what Jesus said at the beginning of the book of Acts? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Verse 32, and we bring you the good news, that's the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, how? By raising Jesus. Right there is an amazing statement that every promise that you see in the Old Testament that was made to the people, God's people, Israel, is all fulfilled in Jesus because of and through his resurrection. So he just starts quoting the Old Testament as it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I've begotten you. Verse 34. And as for the fact that he he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and secure blessing of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Then verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep, that means died, was laid with his fathers, that means buried, and saw corruption, meaning his body decayed. But, verse 37, he whom God raised up did not see corruption 
corruption. Paul's making a very important point here if we're gonna understand the gospel. All of Israel's story points to Jesus, what God did in Israel's unbelief through the cross, through the tomb, is our atonement, but God raised him from the dead, which means Jesus is greater than any other person. So when we look back at the story of the Old Testament, and here they would say David is great, What Paul is saying to them is that as great as you think David is, Jesus is greater. And what that means to me and you in our context is as great as you may think blank, insert human name, is Jesus is greater. And if we're gonna understand the gospel, we have to live in that place. There's nobody greater than Jesus, not even our heroes, not even David. So the fourth movement is that in Jesus alone is forgiveness and salvation. Verse 38, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man, that's Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It's proclaimed because there needs to be a choice made. And by him, everyone who believes is freed, watch this, from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What Paul says is that in Jesus alone is the forgiveness of sins that we all need and the freedom that we cannot find anywhere else. Not even the greatest moral code in the history of the world, the law of Moses, can save you. Only Jesus can. And so the summary here is that Jesus is the point of human history. Jesus works even when some do not believe, even for our atonement, the atonement of the world, that Jesus fulfills all the promises of God and in Jesus there is forgiveness and freedom. That's Paul preaching the gospel. Here's the result. The result is a hunger to know Jesus and then a problem. Verse 42 As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next week. They are begging Paul and Barnabas to come back and preach the same sermon. Y'all have never done that with me. (laughs) And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Look at verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. God was drawing people because of the gospel. But, verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, the Jews, the religious people, people who go to synagogue or church like you and me. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. It began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside, And judge yourselves of unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And it's exactly what they do. Here the book shifts to the Gentiles. But notice what happens here. The religious people see 
the crowds, see people attracted to the gospel, and they get jealous. See, one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel is that when religious people are jealous of the affections of others that were created for Christ. That's one of the most important things I can ever tell you. So we get jealous because we want other people's affections. We want people to love us more than they love Jesus. That's a problem and it's a warning to the church. The question for the church is will we rejoice in the gospel, in the good news, or will we try to make ourselves good news? See, while I've been preaching this sermon, I did the first sermon, while I'm preaching this sermon, there's this prayer going through my mind. It's been going through my mind, two prayers while I've been preparing this all week. The first prayer is if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know Christ, you're not following Christ, maybe you know about God, but you're not committed to God, my prayer has been that you would say a prayer, God, I see Jesus as good news for me. That, that's prayer number one. Prayer number two that's been going through my mind as I've been preparing this and even preaching this, is that if you're here and you go to church a lot, you've been here, you're a member here, this is your home, you come in and out of the doors a lot, my prayer has been for us that we would pray a prayer that says, God, may I not hinder the gospel by trying to make myself good news. I'm sorry, but you're not good news. I'm not good news. I'm Chris Montgomery. I'm not good news. You're not good news. Sometimes it's like we get out of bed and we strut through life and we just think we're God's gift to everything. There's only one good news. There's only one person who is good news to the world. There's only one person who could die to save the world. And it's not me and it's not you. Only one. And it is self-evident that when we as humans do not see and savor Christ for who he is, we seek to take his place and make ourselves the gift of good news to others. I think the last thing we need, the last thing we need is a positive self-help pep talk. I think it's the last thing we need. We got a lot of that in the church today. I think the first thing we need is a heart that would scream, I need you, Jesus. Because when we say that, when we get to that point where we're so desperate, we understand and we say, literally say out loud, I need you, Jesus, that's when we understand the gospel. That's when we understand our need for the gospel. Because Jesus is the point of history, not just Israel's history, human history. It is in Jesus, he is the one through the unbelief of some. He went to a cross for me, for you. He went to a tomb. You know why they had to bury him? To prove he was dead. It's because of Jesus. 
who he was as the Messiah. God raised him on the third day, fulfilling every promise he had ever made to Israel. And it's in Jesus where we find forgiveness and freedom that we cannot find anywhere else. I'm not good news. You're not good news. Jesus is good news. And he's the news we're called to tell to the world. So my prayer, if you're here, you don't know Jesus, you've not given yourself to him, give yourself to him. He is good news for you. If you're here and you are a Christian, you're religious in that sense, pray that prayer. Say, God, let me not hinder anyone by thinking I'm good news for them. Keep Jesus in his proper place. Amen. Father, would you help us? Would you help us not live with this unhealthy jealousy for the affections of others? Would you help us as Christians and as a church not desire love that was created for your son? Would you help us to not try to convert people to us? Would you help us to be people who understand the Father's love through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit? We know it as the gospel. And would you help us be gospel people? Help us be gospel people.